0: Hey all welcome to Data Driven Health Radio. We're back with another season of exciting interviews packed with the information you need to transform your health. This podcast is brought to you by Heads Up, which is our web and mobile app designed to help you integrate all your health data in one place and use data to master your health. Our desktop app has an entirely redesigned look and feel. We've done some big upgrades to our Apple Health integration And we've launched our new fasting timer on the mobile app. So if you love tracking your health, head over to www.headsuphealth.com to learn more about our app and to give it a try. Lastly, we'd like to thank our newest integration partner, BioStrap. BioStrap is a wrist-worn device that measures activity, sleep, heart rate variability, respiration rate, blood oxygen, and much more. Most important, you can now link BioStrap to your Heads Up Health dashboard. Check it out at headsuphealth.com. Okay, with the formalities out of the way, let's dive into our next exciting episode. Welcome to Data Driven Health Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to Data-Driven Health Radio. Today I am sitting across from Mr. Thomas DeLauer, a man who I've just recently got acquainted with and we're threatening to do some fun stuff together on the business collaboration side. Thomas, thanks for taking time. I know you're a busy guy, so always grateful when someone will take the time to come on our show, educate our listeners, share their experience, so thank you for being here.
1: No, thank you for having me it's honestly it's any any excuse to be able to nerd out on some some health stuff is is a fun time for me.
0: Well, we were just starting to nerd out before we hit the record button and we were getting
1: <laughs> and we're we're like, into
0: we like some juicy bits and we're like hey let's not spoil it let's, let's get it on the show here so totally we'll talk a lot about rest we'll talk a lot about recovery about h r v about some of the things you and I want to share more on, which is going beyond keto, what is yeah. what is really the bigger picture? And yep. you and I have this concept of like starting with metabolic therapy, and that opens up your eyes and your awareness to all these other things that you can start tackling around your health. Right. So I think there's a lot of cool stuff we can get into. But before we do that, tell us a bit about yourself. What I'd really love to know is just a bit about where you're from and, and born
1: and raised, and also
0: what, what brought you into the healthcare field.
1: Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in Sonoma, California. So it was in, you know, Northern California, up in the wine country. Interesting childhood there. I I was an avid runner when I was younger. I ran my first marathon when I was 11 years old. And usually when people hear that, they're like, "Okay, I'm going to stop listening to this guy because he doesn't. He's never lived an unhealthy lifestyle. He's been an athlete all his life." Mm -hmm. I'll get to that in a second. But there was a period of time where I was 100 pounds overweight. So it was just my childhood was was unique in that sense. Met my wife in high school. So. I've been with one woman all my life. <laughs> so, it's awesome. uh, I know no other way. Yeah. So, so we met in, we met in high school. And then uh, you know flash forward ultimately why I got into what I do now is I shortly after school got into being a physician recruiter. So I got kind of thrown into the healthcare world uh, right into the belly of the beast. And when you're a physician recruiter and a, a healthcare recruiter in general, you, you have to learn the business. You have to learn how the healthcare system works and you really learn the kind of gross underbelly of it. And, mm-hmm. But you develop a lot of physician relationships. So at a fairly young age, I developed a lot of physician relationships and was learning a lot about how the body worked and how the healthcare system worked. And um, of course, with my own experience as well. Then out of my recruitment career, I had an opportunity to be a part of an ancillary lab services company. So at that point in time, what we did is we provided lab services to a lot of these um, fee for service physicians. So mainly they were doctors that were working with patients on a cash pay basis like concierge medicine. Makes sense. Now, we provided like all of the different lab services they could use at the time like salivary cortisol testing, all this stuff that was really cool 10 years ago. It's kind of, uh, I don't want to say a diamond dozen now, but use a lot of at home cortisol testing and blood testing. This was back when it was really just available uh-huh. still to docs. and. So we were providing that to them. And then that company sold to a a private equity fund, actually to a healthcare hedge fund. And so I left that. And long story short is within that business, I was wanted because of my physician network. I had a lot of physicians because I was a recruiter. So like, okay, well, this guy is coming to the table with a lot of physicians. So that's how I got into that business, if people are wondering. Well, the cool thing is when I was working in that industry, because they were concierge doctors, what that means is they weren't typically working the normal insurance continuum, like the typical reimbursement cycle. They were working with patients on a, a cash pay basis, which means that they were paying a very hefty retainer to have these doctors sort of on staff for them, right? So Makes it's like sense. if yeah. if you're an affluent person that can afford ten grand a month to have a doctor at your beck and call, then you would. Mm-hmm. Now, the cool side of that is that these doctors would generally be really, really progressive in terms of their treatments and their modalities, just because if they didn't perform and didn't actually focus on patient outcomes, they would get fired. It wasn't like healthcare is for most of us where we go to a doctor and they just like slap a label on us and we get a, we get a drug. This was like, Hey, you better get me results and I want to perform better or I'm sick and I need to feel better or heck, I'll go find another doctor cause I can afford it. Um, so the cool thing is these kinds of doctors were always forward thinking. And this is while I was kind of going through my transformation and that's how I learned about keto was these very forward thinking doctors long before keto was ever popular. And so it was the concierge
0: doctors were, were were implementing it.
1: Yeah, utilizing the strategies behind it, really focusing on on inflammation and elimination protocols at the time. So it was very yeah. big on for me before keto it was more about what's fine, what these issues are with certain foods that you eat. Yep. Um, you know, you're overweight, but you are an athlete. Like, why are you overweight overweight? I mean, sure I had a lot of issues and I was developing metabolic syndrome at a very young age, but a lot of it for me was I was so I had been an athlete, and then I started to damage my knees from running so much that I still continued to eat like I was an athlete. So I gained gotcha. a bunch of weight really fast, and yeah, um, but yeah, and then and then it kind of came down to okay, I have a decent business acumen, but I also have a cool transformation story. I want to put it out there. I want to start getting out and it was just you know kind of the right place, at the right time, but also being able to articulate my story in a way that resonated with a lot of people, and that's kind of how my brand was built. And then after that, I just fell in love with um, explaining the ketogenic diet, explaining inflammation, explaining how the body works in a different way from other people.
0: Yeah. So you brought up a couple of interesting things there. One was you were someone who was very physically active at one point and then sounds like there was some injury, but your, your brain was still kind of programmed to eat the same way and you weren't necessarily burning off the calories the same way you were before. And that's kind of like that's not an easy switch to make. It's no, like, okay, I'm exercising, I can't eat all these things that my, my, my brain and my body really enjoy, yeah. and um, I think that's common for a lot of people, and I think that's one area where, at least for me personally, I remember the first time I put my body into ketosis. Yeah. I don't remember ever feeling such mastery over my appetite. Exactly. It was striking. It's like, what you could put my favorite food right in front of me right now and I might have five or six bites of it and, or none, or none of it. And so being in ketosis for the first time, really, it was amazing to me how it helped me regulate myself. Is that something that you found as well when you were? Oh my gosh. Out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was cause I was always a pretty analytical person. So I had a hard time believing just a simple, calories in calories out kind of thing because for me, I was always looking at, I mean, that still applies. Don't get me wrong. Thermodynamics are still important. Let's get that out on the table. But, you know, for me to just look at this and say, okay, we've got so many different variables. I can't possibly believe that I can eat whatever I want within a specific realm of calories and and lose weight. That just doesn't, doesn't work. So I was always looking for something different. And the fact that the ketogenic diet already kind of applied a little bit of this, like it was a little bit more granular and within reach with that respect, Mm -hmm. I already took a liking to it. Then once I got into it, then I realized, okay, well, this is something that I have so much more control over and it's so much more black and white than any other diet. Like it's just, that's what I love most about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, I went, you know, I had some similar stuff going on. It was around 2012 where I had my first uh, symptoms of uh, metabolic and uh, insulin resistance where I knew I had some extra weight I was carrying around. I knew that after I ate certain carb-heavy meals, I hadn't made the association at the time, but I would need to take a nap. Yeah. And my body would just, or I'd get really sleepy around 3 p.m. and I would need to take a nap. A carb-heavy meal would really make me want to take a nap. And uh, I, was eating, I was eating pretty healthy, and I was following mostly, uh, I first started on Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Diet. And um, that helped a lot. I dropped 10 pounds. I started learning about eating clean, processed, high-fat foods. But um, what was missing there was any real emphasis on blood sugar testing. uh, Before after meals. So I was doing this paleo-keto thing, but I had never tested my blood sugar. So I was completely oblivious to which foods were sending me through the roof, which ones weren't. And so, then when I discovered testing for ketosis, that took it to the next level. And for me, that, that empirical data around blood sugar, first of all, I remember my doctor, he said, Dave, go eat your favorite breakfast. I don't care what it is. Could be a stack of pancakes, at Denny's, whatever it is. And He said, test your blood sugar before you eat that, 30 minutes after, 60 minutes after, 120 minutes after, and then 180 minutes after. And that's what started really bringing it home for me was, wow, okay, I ate that stack of pancakes and my blood sugar was 180. (laughs) And if I have bacon and eggs, it's 110. And so, like, these simple associations were important to me. And then starting to test for blood ketones. I'm like you. I'm an analytical guy. And it was a lot harder than I thought to get to that. 1.8, 1.0 1.8, 1.0 millimolars. That was yeah. the first time I brought in. This was four years ago. Bought the Precision Extra because there was no Keto Mojo at that time. And uh, ordered some strips from Australia because they were like $5 here in the United States. <laughs> and it was it was surprising to me how hard it was to get into ketosis. But the analytical aspects of it, testing blood sugar, testing ketones, that's what helped me get to the next level in like my own body recomposition. And then, like you and I have talked about, you know, we have this concept of keto as a gateway drug. Mm-hmm. I see this a lot, and, and maybe you do too, but once people find something that works, they're like, okay, thank God, I can finally lose some freaking weight and keep it off. I'll see these people on social media, and the next thing you know, they're getting an aura ring, and yep. they're starting to look at sleep. And the next thing you know, they're starting to like, ooh, what's HRV? I want to run that. And then you'll see them go and run their nutrition genome data. And then they'll say, Oh, I'm starting to experiment with like, you know, mouth taping and like stuff for other forms of physical improvement. So it's kind of like the first domino for a lot of people. Uh, Is is that something you see as well?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, for myself included too, I think it was the gateway for me becoming sort of a biohacker if you want to call it that. Yeah. It's all the time people. It's, it's the first piece of, because blood sugar is so such a wild card. There's only so much you can do with blood sugar um, without it raising just a bunch of other questions, but with, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're losing weight or gaining weight with blood sugar. I mean, it could mean a sign of healthy or unhealthy, but with, with keto for people that are, I've never looked at anything analytical as far as their body composition is concerned. It gives them an opportunity to, and it gives them a sense of hope, right? Because now they associate this number on a meter with their fat loss, which is just, Great. I mean, now you and I both know that doesn't always mean like a higher number doesn't always mean you're burning more fat, but for someone that's first getting into keto and getting started, it's something tangible. I'm doing this right. Yes. Okay. And then I think it just opens that, wait a minute, there's technology and there's things that I can look at. Yeah. So it's hard to tell. Is it more about the, the technology that's available that makes keto the gateway drug or is the fact that keto in a lot of ways lights up the brain in such a way that now people are just more interested in this stuff and maybe in a way they just haven't even thought of before it's like they now they see it and they're just like hmm this never occurred to me
0: yeah that's a great question i don't know that we'll ever have the answer to that one but um i do know that i see a lot of people start down this path and then they branch off into other areas so why don't we talk about some of those other areas that you can start to look at okay i've I've learned the basics of, of lost 50 pounds. Now I want to start looking at other aspects of my health. So one of the things you and I have touched on is heart rate variability. Yep. And so we could probably spend a minute on, on that one. And, um, I'm happy to share how I measure it, but maybe you, I I know that's something you're actively looking at as well. So what does that mean for you in the context of your overall health?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm relatively new to it. I'd say within the last five, six months, I've really been focusing on it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously I have used aura, I've used whoop. I kind of like to look at data from both of them, but Mm -hmm. for me, it's more so I look at it at the big picture. I'm actually not getting super granular with the data for me. It's more about, okay, this is another piece that, helps confirm or deny when I'm over training or when I'm underrested. Um I, I don't necessarily believe in overtraining. I believe in under recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I mean I guess I guess if you could overtrain if you're really going at it and have no time for recovery. I but agree with that. Yep. I always feel like you can you can go run a marathon. You know, that's that's fine. It's not going to necessarily be over training as long as you have The right recovery and i always look at things at a a, a scale right so i talk about diet with a scale where i say you can't look at your calories necessarily on a daily basis look at them over the course of a week Mm -hmm. or if you really want to look at them over the course of a month but if you look at them over the course of your lifetime you will tell yourself like where you ultimately end up in terms of your body composition and your weight right so it's like if you look at 2500 calories over the course of a day versus okay i want to burn you know or 15, 16,000 calories over the course of a week. It's all relative. It's just measuring on a different scale. Now, when it goes down to uh, heart rate variability, that's the same way I kind of look at that and with recovery too. It's like, if you're going to go and you're going to work out for five hours, then you're going to need longer recovery. If you're going to work out for an hour, you're going to need less recovery. You're looking at the same scale, right? Um, the nice thing, heart rate variability takes that all into consideration. It doesn't care what, what day it is. Heart rate variability is just, this is where you're at now. You're either under recovered or you're over recovered because it, it took all the the black and white part of just trying to compute it in my head out of the equation. How hard did I work out today? Or did I work out too much over the last few days? It's like,
0: it was all subjective prior to having like some kind of measurement.
1: Exactly. It's so, it's just really interesting to be able to, to look at that and really to monitor, not necessarily monitor my sleep, but take a look at how my sleep played into things. Um, I think there's so much that we barely scratched the surface on when it comes down to just measuring, you know, our overall recovery and heart rate variability, <clears throat> excuse me, variability. But when you look at how the heart actually works and the response and it's essentially reactiveness, that's just a really interesting thing. Like if the heart has the ability to switch gears really quick and the way that I've always explained it is if you were, if you had poor heart rate variability and you were to bust into a sprint for five seconds you might be just ghastly winded and you just feel terrible. Like you just feel like every time you have an abrupt movement in a different direction from what the normal flow of efficiency is for you, you're going to feel it. But if you're recovered, you don't feel that way. And it's the simplest way I've explained it. And only athletes really get that. But like if I were to break into a sprint for even just five or 10 seconds while I'm recovered, I would actually feel quite good. I wouldn't need to bend over and gasp for air, but if I'm poor on recovery and I'm not sleeping that same five second sprint, it's like my heart doesn't have the ability to keep up and make that abrupt movement to go from resting to, you know, full bore, if that makes sense.
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's similar. I've, I've started to learn which things trash my heart rate variability and, um, there's no surprises there. You know, one, one too many glasses of scotch, that that can trash heart rate variability, but if I just have a glass of wine, it's uh, it's totally fine. I've noticed that if I have late meals leading up to bedtime and I'm digesting food deep into the sleep cycle, um, that can affect it. So uh, that gives you some good feedback on rest and and recovery. So you mentioned a couple tools you use there. You mentioned the Aura, which I think most people listening to this show are familiar with. Uh, you're also testing uh, Whoop, that. Um, that does similar types of things. More emphasis on exercise.
1: Yeah, yeah. Whoops okay. a little more. Yeah, Aura is a little more focused on sleep. whoops a little more focused on focused on exercise. So it's uh, and it's like sometimes with the kind of lifting that I do, I like to make sure that I'm getting a balance so that I don't uh, beat the heck out of my Aura ring if I'm throwing a barbell around. So, what would you say to a bodybuilder or
0: athlete, particularly someone who's maybe even at the competitive level, mm-hmm. and when you're doing competitive bodybuilding you're you're pushing your body to the max especially when you're starting to do rapid weight gain rapid weight loss yeah i mean i actually spoke to a guy he's a keto bodybuilder and um didn't had never measured hrv or or sleep at all i think if you're really physically taxing your body though those would be some of those people who would need that information the most
1: yeah I- I would definitely agree. And it's definitely, there's this, in the bodybuilding culture, there's such a no pain, no gain kind of thought process. You know, again, that's a relative thing. No pain, no gain needs to be very short stents of, um, <laughs> of pain, right? You're not, if you're in pain all the time, there's this, in bodybuilding culture, it's like, should you, you should be sore and hurting all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look at evidence now, it shows that, okay, we don't really see the link with soreness, but like recovery is everything. I mean, you look at some of the the older bodybuilders, even like Dorian Yates back in the day, like Dorian Yates was always big on really low volume, high intensity stuff. Like he Mm -hmm. was in like 30 minute workouts, boom, and recover, recover, recover. Um, Some of the biggest overall, just largest bodybuilders. I mean, granted, there's a lot of other things that come into play, but when you're talking about just mass for mass for mass sakes and being able to put on the most amount of muscle, the guys that focused more so on shorter intense workouts and lots of recovery were always the bigger guys. Dennis Wolf, Marcus Rule, uh Dorian Yates, all those guys, you know, the big giant dudes. Whereas even like Ronnie Coleman was giant and I'm naming names in the bodybuilding world just because I I I had studied it and I was interested in it. Um, but for those of people that are actually looking to tax their body to the limit they need to have these periods of taxation but also recovery and bodybuilding culture leads us to believe that we need to just be constantly constantly pushing ourselves so if we were to track the data on that we would probably be having very poor heart rate variability all the time yeah. um which i think that people again they think that it's the cardio and the weight training that's taking the weight off of them it's the diet that's taking the weight off of them and the recovery that's taking the weight off of them yep. and i think that a bodybuilding cutting cycle could probably be cut in probably three, four weeks, if you actually were to apply these principles. And it's, it's really difficult just because it's such a different mindset. I would say only a small percentage of the bodybuilding community actually is into the data like this.
0: Um, I, th- I think every bodybuilder, I mean, if you can't tell me your HRV score, that, that, that would be a red flag for me because you're just not connected with like how well you're recovering. A lot of these old school guys, maybe they didn't need the data, they just knew, okay, I can train 30 minutes and then I need to focus on recovery. It sounds like intellectually they already knew what HRV was. They yeah. just you weren't know, measuring it. Um, but now it's so easy to measure. It would be yeah. like such a differentiator. To be
1: and it's, back then, I feel, I feel like, quite frankly, even like Arnold, you talk about, like, there's so much more in tune with their bodies. Like, they really were. There was a lot more of a respect for the body. Um, in old bodybuilding culture, like Arnold, Frank Zane, all those guys, Franco Colombo, like they were all about mind muscle connection and I being able it. to feel their body, That's Arnold, cool. you know, and it's like, a, we are out of touch, right? Like we, we have so much going on. We have just a million things at one time. We're so, we never put our devices down. It's so difficult to get a connection with your body and it's a meditative state. It's a meditative thing. And no one it wants a meditative to meditative
0: thing. When I I'm go to totally. the gym, it's meditative.
1: It's not supposed to be like there's a time and a place for like blood and guts on the gym floor. But yeah. most of the time, it's a meditation thing for me. I, I agree the, with you. The reason that I enjoy doing I mean I do it all, like I do lots of high intensity interval training, I do lots of everything, but I still to this day enjoy bodybuilding style exercises me too. Not because it's bodybuilding, because I'm not a bodybuilder, even though some people might say I kinda look like one. I just yeah. I enjoy training that way because I love for me when I meditate, I love doing body scan type stuff anyway. Like I like to feel different parts of my body. So when I'm lifting, if I'm not feeling activation of the proper muscles, then I don't feel like I'm getting a good workout And I could throw A bunch of weight around and burn a bunch of calories but it doesn't feel like a good workout unless I'm actually activating and for me that's the mental satisfaction that I get and I feel like that is what's lacking in modern young bodybuilders compared to like Arnold's day so there was just more being in touch with your body the good news is now since we're in this gray area where people are out of touch with their body but there's a lot of technology the next era of bodybuilders need to start looking at okay well how can I track this data then and how can I just get more tech savvy on it I guess yeah
0: man it's like you're uh, taking the words out of my mouth like when I go to the gym it for me it's like I'm excited because yeah. I'm gonna do these movements I know and I enjoy and that that are gonna stress my body in a very specific way totally and it's totally a meditation and uh you know sometimes I'll actually um do some uh some things to enhance my mental state Let's just leave it at that because that just enhances the yeah. meditation for me even more for
1: sure. It just makes that mind body connection even deeper. So yeah. From Arnold going, used to even talk about that. Arnold used to go, I mean, he used to did he mean, smoke before he worked out. Yeah. He used to just smoke a pre-workout doobie. That was his thing. So there's
0: gyms now where you can smoke a doobie at the gym and, and work out. I mean, we're not, the, he wasn't the only crazy one. There's whole yeah. like gyms that are like, yes, we understand this takes your focus and your and your experience to the next level. Obviously, yeah. it's in states where medicinal and recreational are legal. And that's just, to me, the reason I bring that up is because it's just, it's making that mind-body meditative uh, experience even stronger. If If totally. you engage in that. But even when I don't, uh, lifting weights is a meditation for me. I love it. That's a beautiful. Yeah. 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 So let's talk more about like the gateway drugs. So like there's a lot of people who have gut dysbiosis, really bad food insen- sensitivities and intolerances that they can start to look at. There's, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying you have to be technically savvy or you have to be medically trained. I see people going and ordering their own genetic tests like from a nutrition genome and starting to look at specific mutations that may explain why they feel a certain way uh, or why they even act a certain way. So there's direct-to-consumer genetic testing. There's microbiome testing. I see a lot of people doing, experimenting with different derivatives of the keto diet. There's ways to do straight carnivore. There's ways to do it where you're cycling. I think the more people out there who are understanding their own blood test results, I think that's really important for people i think historically we just kind of deferred to the doctor to keep track of all that information for us yeah but it's awesome when people are now running their own lab tests or looking at this data and starting to question it and yep. starting to make decisions for themselves so like that's where this whole like pandora's box opens i started with keto it's super popular it worked for me and now there's all this other cool shit i can learn about totally pain. so it could be any of those things. Where do, where What other ways do you see people branching out once they start to get some wins under their belt?
1: Yeah, I mean, intermittent fasting is probably the next step that people take. So I think that once they start keto, they start realizing, wait a minute, I'm not as hungry. And wait a minute, I've already kind of... Cross this bridge of yeah of carbs being omitted. Do I even like if I'm not hungry? Why should I eat? And probably the the allure of intermittent fasting for people that start keto is probably simply because they're legitimately not hungry and they've probably never been in a point before other than when they're gorging themselves, where they're not hungry, Mm -hmm. right? They're just they're always hungry because their blood sugar is always rising and falling and skyrocketing and crashing, so they're always hungry. So the thought of even intermittent fasting when you haven't started keto for most people is like totally foreign because they're like, you're telling me I'm not going to eat for 16 or 18 hours? No way. You know? So it's like, that's the kind of the next progression. Then they do intermittent fasting and they start doing some variations of 16, eight, or maybe they just skip breakfast and then they push it a little bit longer. And then I start seeing people get interested in, okay, well, I want to see, I want to do some prolonged fasting and I want to get age rejuvenation out of this. I want to get overall cellular health. And they start taking a look at their overall metabolic drive and metabolic health. And that's where things get really interesting. And I think because we're talking about the mitochondria in general, everything we talk about doing keto, intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, uh, red light therapy, cryotherapy, um, sleep therapy, like different kind of sleep temperature therapy, like I'm a fan of the chili pad, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that, like they're all affecting us at a mitochondrial level. And I think it's like once people start learning that we have this little powerhouse inside of our cell that creates energy and the more that we can harness the efficiency of that and harness the power of that and get it more efficient, then... The more energy and the more abundance we have. So it's just this natural progression. And then I kind of see people going down these other routes. Of course, heart rate variability is one. I see a lot of, you know, photobiomodulation, like, okay, how can I manipulate light therapy? Like, how can I manipulate light as a therapy, I should say? Um, so, you know, red light therapy comes in the mix um, or just focusing on sun exposure a little bit more. And then uh, cryotherapy. For me,
0: sun exposure. I mean, Feel so much better when I've got some, some color on my skin and I'm outside a lot.
1: Dude. <laughs>
0: People that's are ugly. slapping sunscreen on and there's a place for that product for sure, maybe. I don't I don't believe in it. I I believe I should be in the sun long enough to, to have a safe exposure and then I shouldn't be in the sun. But putting a bunch of garbage on your skin that's coming from completely unregulated
1: companies. Yeah, dude, um, I'm with I'm with you hundred percent, man. I, I think
0: you're actually worse off than being
1: in the sun i don't have anything to back this up i've seen some stuff but i mean i would argue that probably skin cancer is probably more a result of the chemicals in the sunscreen than the sun
0: or lack of sun you know everybody's covered up and slathered in sun and 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 lacks vitamin d which and lacks all the benefits of sun exposure or like you said you're you're buying the cheapest sunscreen on the shelf and putting it on your body and so
1: anyhow yeah so when you look at like the uh you know Middle Eastern countries and things like that like what do they do if they're going to be out in the sun for a long time? they cover up mm-hmm. think they, they make it so they 're not exposed to the sun for a little for a little less time and it's just kind of like we have within our genetic makeup the ability to handle certain amounts of sun. Someone from Ireland isn't designed to handle as much sun, and that's okay they should quite frankly live their life accordingly and if they're going to be out in the sun more they should probably cover up because it's just yeah. if'. Fair you point. Know, Yep. Someone that's a someone that's a mut like me, kind of middle European and Italian, and I mean it's like that's I can handle a little bit of sun, but also you said it yourself. It's like when we start to burn, that's that's our sign. That's our natural inherent ability or body saying, okay, time's up. Like this is probably all you need right now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably the worst person to. I mean, I'm I'm out in the sun all the time. I love it. I feel a million times better when I'm getting a lot of sunlight. That's yeah. one of the reasons I left my hometown in winnipeg canada i just realized i couldn't i couldn't i was never meant to exist in a cold climate whenever i'd travel somewhere or i'd be in even humid or dry or whatever i'd be outside i like exercising in the sun as much as i can in the sunlight so you've been hitting on some good ones here keto to fasting and then some of the modalities like light exposure which i haven't tried yet uh cryotherapy um sun exposure And then where else do you see people branching out?
1: You know, I mean, a lot of manipulation of just just cold therapies in general. So not just cryotherapy, but cold water, cold shower therapy, high sympathetic nervous system activation. Yeah, like that's, you know, a big thing for me is like, okay, how can you can get your body into that sympathetic nervous system in a controlled way, then you make it so that you're a lot more controlled in general with that. I find my resilience to stress, my resilience to tough situations are going to be, probably heightened because of the amount of time I spend in cold water. I take cold showers nine times out of 10, you know, so what it's about, um, cold exposure or cryo. Have you done those? Yeah. So I've done, you know, so cryo, I've done cryo a fair bit, but it gets you know, honestly for me, it gets expensive considering the return. Mm-hmm. Like I, I feel more out of cold showers mentally through meditation and Wim Hof techniques and proper breathing than I do from cryotherapy. I'm not saying cryotherapy is bad by no stretch. Like if you can afford to do it all the time or mm-hmm. have one in your house, then great. Like I think Joe Rogan has one like in his, like, like that's awesome. Like if I had that at my disposal, then sure. sure but like ice plunges, those are great. Another thing, like just temperature modulation. Like have you heard of, have you seen the chili pad and like those things out there?
0: That's on my wish list. I know there's a yeah. new, I was holding out for a new one that was coming out. So uh, I was planning to pick one of those up soon.
1: Yeah, they have like ChiliPad has the ChiliPad and they have the Uller, which is just a slightly more advanced one. And that's, um, man, that's insane. Like that is, that was a, there's a few different models out there. So it's not like this is a bias statement, but I mean, it's just the science on, how our body, like temperature, just affects our rate of sleep and how, how deep of sleep we get into—it's pretty nuts.
0: Um, I don't need any convincing on that. Yeah. I, I sleep best when the room is as cold as possible. Yep. My AC can't even really get it down as low as I'd like, so if I had that extra little push, I think it yep. would be a nice little bump. I'd obviously love to measure that as well. That's definitely on my list.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely worth it, man. Because it's—I was going through—I went through a bout of insomnia this last winter. And it's like, you'd think winter, it doesn't make sense. Right. And i like, why was I not sleeping? And it was what I realized is later on as the months got warmer and we started having the AC on, I started sleeping again. And I was realizing that what was going on in the winter, we, we either not have the AC on or even have the heater on because we've got a, you know, an infant in the house. So we wanted it to be temperate for him. And it was like, so, without the AC running, it was just getting warmer, and I was just waking up from my own. You know, I was right, like, It's the
0: o-? exact same thing.
1: Yeah. It's really, it's wild. It's like, I was like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the AC starts coming on as the months get warmer. Uh, there we go. And I'm like, I'm sleeping again.
0: <laughs> Man, I don't know about you, but when I get into a new hotel room, I'm about to go to sleep. First thing I do is go over that AC and just punch it down as low as it'll possibly go.
1: Dude, was it, was it, because uh, we were both in uh, San Diego a couple weeks ago for Low Carb USA. Yeah. Um, I could not get my hotel room cool. Like, was you were you having issues too? Mine was not cooling down, and I was like, it was it was wild. I was like, what the heck's going on? And like, so ran into that exact problem. So,
0: I had a worse issue. I was staying with a friend. She lived up in the Cardiff area, and uh, uh, her AC just busted. Like before I got there, so like the thermostat was reading eighty nine degrees in, oh, man. in the room. So, and
1: it was like this it was like this period of time in San Diego where they're just like, we're not used to it being this hot. Like no one knows what to do. Like cause it was, it was, you know, 95 degrees in San Diego, which is, you know, being yeah. out on the water, it's pretty hot. So, yeah. Um,
0: you touched on another one that's really cool. And one that I'm starting to do more with, which is breath work. Yeah. And there's different directions that that can go. There's breath work where you're just sitting and doing a meditation, whether that's just a breath meditation, a guided meditation that gets really really deep into mind body connection Mm -hmm. when we're talking about keto as a gateway drug and starting to expand your horizons uh, and you even mentioned this when we talked about the bodybuilders but let's just talk about breath work in the in the context of meditation and for someone who's learning how to really master themselves and really take control of their health When you sit there with your eyes closed and you start to connect with what's going through your head, a lot of it's just random noise, but you start to learn that it's just random noise and and there's no need to have any attachment to said noise. That carries over into everyday life in profound ways. You may also start to develop more of a mind-body connection. The first style of meditation I learned was called Vipassana meditation, which is just insight meditation. But the teacher said, you know, a lot of times when people start meditating, they lose 20 pounds. So there was this term called the Vipassana diet. And it's because you're developing that mind-body awareness for the first time. And all of a sudden, you're more aware of how much food you're putting into your body. And all of a sudden, you're, you're more aware of the sensations of how uh, full you feel. So I think if we're talking about the, the bigger picture of health, um, mind-body awareness is, is a big part of that. Is that something that's... Part of your routine. Oh,
1: absolutely. You mentioned I, a couple times. Yeah, meditation's huge. And I, I, I talk about it a fair bit, but I, I tend to not go down the rabbit hole on my channel a whole lot because it's just people, it's still like people just, you just have to try it before you can really believe it. It's totally like, totally agree,
0: man. Yep. It's
1: just like people, you say meditation and people just think that you're some yogi sitting on a hilltop. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that at all. It's like, that is how I, that is how I can exercise restraint when I need to. That's how, it has taught me so much about myself and just the radio noise, as we call it. It's just the element of mastery, that constant radio noise that's going on and to understand what's just radio noise. And people think that meditation is about turning your brain off. And it is to a sense, but it's, it's more about just becoming aware of what is coming into your brain and then just letting it go. It's not forcing it out. It's just, there's a thought, there's a thought, there's a thought. And it's like it's always going to happen and people give up on meditation because they think that they're going to eventually achieve this state of like not being able to have those thoughts come in. For me, it's a different situation. I I come out of a meditation with a sense of accomplishment because, hey, yes, I didn't get lost. I was able to recognize all those thoughts coming in. It never goes away. Yeah. I can count on one hand, the amount of times I've gotten sort of into that almost transcendental state. You know, like it's, you have to be, I think, there's a lot of things that have to be in line for that to happen to where you actually get into that, that state where time has no value. And next thing you know, a half an hour has gotten by. I've I mean, had a
0: few of those. Yeah,
1: it's, it's rare. very rare. It's very yeah. rare, but it's amazing. And they're I don't awesome know
0: when they happen, but uh, it is rare.
1: It I don't know amazing. if that's, I don't know if that's what, you know, the, the Buddhist monks that really live it, if that's what they're experiencing all the time, if that is, then I can see why they will meditate for days on end. Cause yeah. that's, uh, but it, I was never really into meditation until keto. Yeah. i mean it's like again man how much of it is is the data and how much of it is the fact that we have a higher rate of just oxidation happening in the brain of, of ketone oxidation that's happening in the brain and we're literally thinking at a different wavelength a different level that's
0: uh, really a fascinating hypothesis actually is that our, our brain actually is working so much better that we can even begin to conceptualize all of the totally aspects of our health even sitting down to meditate for 20 minutes which for some people it may sound terrifying or impossible, um, but you get through a few of those. So it's hard to say what actually causes it. Here's another one for you. What about uh, working with breath for performance? And and the reason I bring that up is because I'm reading a book right now called The Oxygen Advantage. And they talk a lot about forcing yourself to breathe through your nose because it's going to allow your body to absorb more oxygen. Yeah. Even when you're exercising at lower levels and you know, I'd heard people anecdotally talk about mouth taping, like when you're sleeping. I thought that was like some weird bondage thing. But like as I've learned more about it, it's like actually that makes a lot of sense. And so I've been even in the last two weeks when I'm at the gym or when I'm mindful of it, I'm always trying to breathe through my nose. Yeah. And you touched on Wim Hof, which is other ways of, of breathing for performance. And I don't know a lot about that, but what are your what can you share just on um, using breath we talked about it from a self-awareness perspective just now. Yep but There's also like advanced performance hacks you can get from learning how to work with breath.
1: Oh heck. Yeah, yeah. I mean being able to Immediately switch your body from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state on demand. It's pretty awesome, right? So yep. it's like I first started playing with box box breathing, which is kind of how I started which was like, you know, just inhale and then long exhalations and then short inhalations and longer exhalations like kind of breathing in a box. So it's like where you inhale, hold, exhale. I started experimenting with that because as a way to get out of the sympathetic nervous system before getting into a cold shower or a cold (laughs) plunge, because if you're already, you know, up here with your sympathetic nervous system, then you jump in a cold shower, it's, it's, it skins you through the roof. But if you can bring yourself down a little bit, but then practicing that breathing while, being exposed to cold oh, that's that that's a been just challenge. like so it was just like it was really challenging and I really and then I realized okay this is clearly doing something to the point where I could literally feel my heart go from bump 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 bump, bump to bump 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 in a matter of seconds like seconds man yeah and so then I started investigating Wim Hof and all of a, you know some of his stuff's a little out there sounds yeah. like it, but it I don't know work. Much, but honestly and it's I mean it's but his the evidence doesn't lie I mean his way of being able to expose himself to cold. is just unreal. So I kind of apply principles of his, but box breathing is really the big one for me. And just practicing diaphragmatic breathing. So many of us just live in a world of um, like, we're expanding our rib cage to breathe all the time. You know, that's not, we shouldn't be lifting our rib cage. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be, you know, belly breathing all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it comes from a world where we all feel like we need to suck our stomachs in and have tight abs. So we don't want to breathe through our bellies, but it's like, that's the way to do it. You shouldn't have to lift your rib cage, your diaphragm should be doing the work. And I realized that uh, I started having a bunch of like bouts of hiccuping when I was working out, I was always hiccuping. And then I realized that that's my diaphragm going into spasm because it's weak, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, well, crap, something needs to change. So I started focusing on diaphragmatic breathing. And I was realizing as I was doing that, it was like, my diaphragm was getting sore, like I was working a muscle because it is a muscle. And I'm just going, Oh, crap, like, this like, I've got all these muscles on me, but then I've got this weak ass diaphragm yeah. that is sore because I was doing belly breathing. This is yeah. pathetic. And it was at that point when I realized, okay, something, I need to change this. Yeah. Um, so from a performance standpoint, it's made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, inhalation through the nose, hundred percent exhalation. I'm all about rapid exhalation and I can rapidly exhale faster through the mouth. Mm-hmm. So if there, if there was a way for me to have like a one way valve, <laughs> you know, that would be it. Cause I don't believe in, stopping the exhalation from your mouth and only focusing the exhalation from your, from your nose. Cause I, but I do believe in breathing through the nose, exhale through the mouth. Um, and I'm not anti mouth taping either. I'm not finally, um,
0: I haven't tried it yet,
1: but uh, I'm, it's definitely on my
0: I, uh, list of experiments for sleep and exercise.
1: Totally. I, I personally, my personal take on mouth breathing is if the person is old enough to want to do it themselves, then uh, fine. But I don't, I don't, necessarily think putting it on a toddler that doesn't really have a say mm-hmm. is the way that i know some people that are big on like they want to start them young and I, put, I see the
0: training like, even at a t- young young age they're being forced to do it that way that yeah
1: happens. i don't i just don't i don't know i i just feel yeah, like if you if sense. you don't have the ability to rip it off and take yeah. it off like i mean kids wake up with stuffy noses all the time so i think sometimes it's like with anything people tend to go extreme but i feel like the principle of it in fact dentists have been Talking about it for a long time because it makes has a big positive effect on teeth crowding and stuff like that. To be able to not necessarily always breathing through your mouth.
0: Um,
1: so you the the dental association usually recommends like around eight to ten years old is when you should start if you're experiencing that. But
0: yeah,
1: um, it's just wild. I mean, and just the amount of oxygen that you take in that that gets delivered through your nose versus your mouth. Um
0: yep. that's, that's what the book is saying. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So you actually get more per unit of air. I guess you could call it. You get more oxygen per breath with your nose than you do through your mouth. Yep. Um, and it's it's pretty wild.
0: Yeah, he also talks about using breath hold techniques to almost simulate living and training at altitude. Yeah, hypoxic
1: so training. Like increase,
0: yeah, yeah increased red blood cell count. <coughs> Anyhow, you, you can tell where my nerd interests are are they're they're moving more into the breath area, which is an undiscovered area of health for me. So um, that's one that I've I've started delving into a little bit more. But I think we've we've covered a lot here just on like different ways people can look at their health. Everyone is a unique equation and everyone will find success for whatever it is they're looking for in different ways. It could be a food sensitivity for one person and for the next person it could be something completely different. So there's lots of ways your own journey is going to unfold. But for a lot of people, I think starting with some metabolic health, through keto or through whatever it is sets this path in motion so I'm glad we're starting to explore some of these topics I know we're planning to talk more about this stuff together in uh, the coming months a couple parting questions for you here Mr. Thomas so uh, how long did you live in Sonoma until I was 18 so all right are you still a wine guy
1: you know i the funny thing is, I grew up so much immersed in that culture that i wouldn't I wouldn't say I have an aversion to it Fair i enough. have it's It's like I don't have much interest because I was so immersed in that like Gosh. growing up it was just part of our that being said, I am an expert in wine, even though I don't drink <laughs> yeah because I grew up in it so like I understand food pairing i I get it and I appreciate yeah. the hell out of it, but yeah. I was so much in it that I'm just like." Eh. <laughs>
0: You know the beautiful thing for me is you can order some wines now that are just pre pre tested to be sugar free. And yeah. I'm I'm not a huge drinker, but if I'm going to have a glass at night or sit down with a family, and uh, there's a few companies out there. You know, I order from uh, Dry Farm. Yeah. At least I know that they've done the tests to know that they're sugar free because low carbon blood sugar is super important to me. And I don't want to blow it up by having a couple glasses of wine. And there's a ton of really good wine out there. You don't have to buy it from Dry Farm. You can go to the liquor store and ask them, can I get a really nice European, dry, French, sugar-free wine? So still being able to enjoy alcohol is uh, important to me, especially a nice glass of wine. Totally. Uh, I've also tested uh, single malt scotch. You know, I can have one or two of those, stay in ketosis. So if I have one or two at night, I'll still be in ketosis the next day. Anyhow, I was going to ask you if you have a favorite um, winery.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm partial to uh, Gunlock Bunchu, which is up in, Gunla- have you heard of Gunlock Bunchu? No. Yeah, Gunlock Bunchu is really, I mean, they've just their zin is amazing. And then uh, Ravenswood. That one I know. Yeah, Ravenswood is amazing. And I grew up right down the street from Buena Vista. So, uh, you yeah. know, I lived about a half a mile from Buena Vista Winery. So that was, I always, you know, appreciate their wines and their cabs. So, Cool.
0: And then last question, Thomas. So what are your top three metrics that you're tracking
1: right now? Uh, Heart rate variability is definitely one. Uh, Glucose ketone index is, you know, a big one for me now as well. And then, you know, now I'm, it sounds funny, but I'm more more about tracking my overall temperature of like my thermostat. (laughs) So literally my my thermostat at at home and in my office and tracking just my energy. So I'm getting kind of weird with it, but we got to get the temperature onto the heads of the dashboard. You
0: know, there's a lot of these digital thermostats now, you know, like Nest and these other ones. If we could overlay, like, temperature data with sleep, I think people would see some interesting connections there. That's actually a really good one, is uh, ambient room temp.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's really important. I think it plays a big role.
0: Cool. Well, uh, you also mentioned the GKI which uh, I think is important. Glucose keto Index. The ratio of those two numbers I think has a lot more meaning than um, one individual number. I'd be curious to notice if you've seen any correlations between GKI and your heart rate variability. I know when my GKI is really low, I see really nice increases in HRV. That yep. could just be me. but um,
1: yep. Yeah, I think it's, well, I noticed that when my GKI is nice and low that I'm sleeping better. So my HRV by default gets better. So I've definitely, I think that's the connection there. I think, you know, I think just everything is in balance. So you're sleeping better. You're not having these little micro disruptions in your sleep. So I definitely have noticed the same thing, but I think that's the common denominator.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we covered a lot of ground here. This was a great discussion. Hopefully we'll have more in the coming. Totally, months. I'm yeah, always uh, down to learn out. getting to know you, Thomas, you're a great guy. We have a lot of same interests. And I'm looking forward to doing more work with you. So really great getting to know you, sir. Thank you for all your great work. For those who are listening, if you want to catch more of Thomas's work, where would be some of the best places to go, Thomas?
1: Um, your YouTube channel. Yeah, I think I mean the YouTube channel is a great place to go just because there's tons of information for people yep. every walk of life. So I mean, I always direct people there. But um, thomasdelauer.com, also you know, Purathrive, ecom um, you know, that's I have a couple of patents in that world. So if you guys are interested in learning about things that um, Emulsification blends and stuff that I've created utilizing those patents um, We have some patents in the world of turmeric curcumin and delivery systems there. So just some interesting stuff Those are your um,
0: products at that website.
1: hmm Yeah okay. So those are I have two patents receptor cell mutated endocytosis and then a fossil chloride bond that we use for Delivery for micellar liposomal delivery. So it's total like hardcore nerd stuff, but it's what it's are your top sellers? Uh, definitely curcumin, coal, excuse me, curcumin gold, which is uh, curcumin. Then it's also ginger and it's DHA from algal oil. But again, it's put in a micellized form, so it's got a patented delivery system. So it's kind of it's in a weird, interesting liquid, yep. and you know, add it to yogurt or add it to you know almond milk or whatever. Yeah. And then you know, the next best seller is going to be typically just the general turmeric extract, which is the same thing, but full spectrum turmeric. So you're not just taking the curcumin. Again, my, my whole world and a lot of my research has been in the world of inflammation. And then our next bestseller is going to be keto balance, which is a product specifically for keto, which is, um, again, algal oil, small amount of MCT, and then a, a hydrolyzed collagen all put into the same liquid mycelized form. So it's, it's like you put a tablespoon of it in your coffee kind of thing. It's not like a, not like a supplement or not like a typical like powder. It's a whole different delivery system. Um, more about the science than anything else on it.
0: Those are the top ones. So people yeah. are using the curcumin mostly for inflammation. Purposes.
1: Yeah, that's I, honestly our, our biggest demographic on that is people over 45, over fi- 45, 50 that are, are more so for joint pain, things like that. Like oh, we true. have our patents, 185 times absorbency uh, than compared to just traditional turmeric. So it's like we have some pretty powerful, powerful claims there when it comes down to it yeah i take absorb. a capsule format of it
0: so i'd love to try your product
1: yeah totally well just i've got your address i'll just shoot you uh i'll shoot you some. i want you to try it out
0: that sounds great all right mr thomas uh wonderful discussion thank you for your time sir we're grateful and uh look forward to having uh, more opportunities to work with you sir thank you all right
1: Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio.